The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of MedPEP or Physician Health Services. The advice given to Marie Curious has been individualized and may not apply to the listener. While Marie Curious is a real person describing both real and hypothetical events and situations, she is using a pseudonym for this series. I'd like to welcome our listening audience back to MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program. I'm your host, Dr. Les Schwab. I'm a practicing internist with many years of medical leadership experience. I'm also a trained professional coach who helps medical leaders, physicians, and other health professionals develop strategies and plans for managing workplace complexity in today's stressful and depleting healthcare environment. I'm here to serve as the guide of my young colleague, Dr. Marie Curious, an early career primary care internist who was determined not only to survive, but to thrive at a time when professional burnout is rampant throughout the healthcare system. In each podcast, I facilitate a conversation between Marie and an expert with knowledge and skills to help her optimize her experience practicing medicine. In our last broadcast, we heard from Dr. Steve Edelman, who spoke to us about looking for help in all the wrong places. Today's expert is Dr. Mark Green, who will be speaking about managing unrealistic expectations by embracing our powerlessness. But before we begin, I'd like to say hello to Marie and inquire, how are you, Marie? Glad to be back, Les. I'm doing better. That's wonderful. Do you want to say a little more about that? To be honest, it was a little bit of a break okay. from recording that pep. And okay. the reason why that was helpful is because the tools that I learned from this very podcast series helped me to reorganize and prioritize what I needed to do to help me feel like I was being the most effective in my life. And that required a little bit of time off. Certainly we've been talking about timeouts and times for reflection and times to assimilate and incorporate tools. And we've been shooting a fire hose of them out with these weekly recording sessions in general. So wonderful that you were able to take the break and put it to some use for yourself. I've also been trying to practice one of our previous guests, Dr. Danielle Ofri's point about really listening to the patient. And I think it's going to tie in seamlessly, hopefully, with what Dr. Green has to offer us today. You know, I think it is too. So I'm really curious to listen in myself about your conversation with Dr. Green. Dr. Green, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, hi. Hi, and uh, may I call you Mark? Please do. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your 30-second snippet about who you are and what you do, and specifically what you do to improve the, the lot of us physicians? Okay, so I'm a psychiatrist, and I was trained initially in England as an internist. And then when I came here, I did psychiatry and specialized in addiction psychiatry and along the way quite a lot of pain medicine. So in terms of helping physicians, I've worked a lot in training hospitals in New York, Vermont, Colorado and Massachusetts, teaching a lot about how to manage difficult patient encounters mm. with people with addictions as well as people with pain and the crossover between the two. So in one of my jobs in Colorado at Kaiser Permanente, I ran the pain and addiction services. 
and there's a lot of education and support for very overworked PCPs charged with helping some very complicated patients. Absolutely. What was one of the major takeaways that you got from this experience that you felt really benefited these beleaguered physicians? I really felt that they were on the forefront of so many different constraints. They had so little time mm. to see their patients, so many requirements to look at the glucose and all of the screenings that they were doing mm. and the time that they needed to actually sit with the complexity and emotional pain of their patients mm. was so, so small and lost mm -hmm. with all, all of the demands placed upon them. And they would fall back on their instincts of trying to help, trying to alleviate the suffering. And that would lead them into dark alleys of doing harm mm. to patients, which was exactly the opposite of what they wanted to do. Mark, I think you definitely hit upon the type A classic physician personality, which is that we want to do. We want to right. impart some sort of action to help alleviate stress, pain, conflict, any of those things. But what I'm hearing, and I wanted to verify this, is that it's the opposite of what you would actually recommend, and it's the opposite of what patients actually need. It's a balance. Uh, so if you're caught by the winds of just wanting to alleviate suffering, and you don't have the time to actually pass out what that means mm -hmm. for that patient, then you end up taking an easier option. For example, prescribing high doses of opiates for mm. a long period of time or benzodiazepines and there can be ordering a lot of tests i think that that can be another impulse mm -hmm. um, you want to do something you can order a lot of tests for patients which might not be necessary and there's a balance between trying to alleviate the pain and suffering and meet the patient's expectations and hopes and really trying to say what is causing, what is driving the, the distress for this patient? Right. And am I accompanying them into a bottomless pit of suffering by just focusing on doing more, doing more, doing more? Right. And so what are some of the underlying reasons that really bring patients to a place of need? What were those identified to be? Well, if I think of a particular patient, someone who came and she experienced chronic fatigue or Lyme disease or some chronic debilitating condition with lots of psychological components. She'd had sexual abuse, she'd had years of involvement with um, social services, multiple kids, some incarcerations, some traumas along the way. And what she came demanding of emergency rooms, of mm -hmm. hospital inpatient admissions, was relieve my pain, relieve my agony, do something. Mm. And physicians across the system were trying to think what's going on for her, mm -hmm. trying to alleviate her distress, trying to move her on because she was taking up so much of their time. Right. And 
along the way, she ended up on very high doses of benzodiazepines, very high doses of opiates, lots of um, unnecessary procedures. Mm -hmm. What she really needed was someone to stop and help her get beneath that to some of the great distress that she experienced. And what happens with all of the interventions is a oblique way of helping, which lets the patient know that you're doing something, right. but they still feel alone yeah. and they still feel distressed and out of control. I can think of dozens of patients, not with those exact right. situation, but going back to listening to the patient mm -hmm. and finding that an effective way to spend time. I oftentimes find myself listening to patients and for me, I'm trying to get down to what's actually bothering them. And it right. may not be the physical manifestation of, of right. what they're coming in to see me, but that digging takes time, number one. And number two, when I do listen to them, I feel absolutely powerless to actually help them with what they yeah. need because it could be a social situation, economic hardship, lack of support from family and friends. And I find this more and more that patients are becoming isolated without any sort of social network or support. So what do I do with that? Well, I think you are doing so much with that, right? Mm. So it's not like you're digging for the parasite which is causing the problem. You're engaged with them in a caring, curious way. Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of patients know that there's no simple answer. Mm. You know, they might come in with a delusion that they've got a parasite or something, but most of them understand <laughs> that there's, there's no simple answer. Right but they're fed up being pushed away and being cast aside and it makes them angry and upset and demanding. Mm. And so your engagement and caring and saying, oh, what's going on with you? And sharing in some ways that sense of powerlessness. It's what you do with that sense of powerlessness, which is important, which I wanna say more about. Yes, actually, I was just gonna say, what do right. I do? Because I find myself more often than not saying, I'm sorry. You know, right. I, I don't know how to help you, but yeah. I'm gonna try to look into resources, which me as a physician, I'm not trained to do. I'm not a social worker. Right. I'm not a government employee. I don't provide housing, right. uh, <laughs> food, all these yeah, sorts of so things. there's so many limits to what we can do. So it people. feels very much like I, as this person's physician, am powerless. Right. So there are things that you can do by understanding and there are things that you can do by collaboratively problem solving mm -hmm. with the patient mm -hmm. and saying, I can't help you, but let's find some resources. Let's see if we can think of somebody who can. Mm -hmm. But it's the gift that you give of being with them in their powerlessness, sharing in that sense that is so powerful. Right. So instead of responding to the powerlessness that you feel in that moment by ordering an irrelevant test, mm -hmm. giving them some opiates or pushing them out the door quickly mm -hmm. by saying, "Ugh, I get it, I'm here with you and it feels so awful. People feel less alone, people's stress level goes down, mm -hmm. people feel understood, they feel less desperate 
and they're able to be more flexible in their thinking. They're able to take in more options. They're able to say, okay, um, you're with me. Right. Maybe there's another hopeful path other than just giving me more pain medications. Well, I do like to tell some patients, the women patients, of course, and I ask for permission, but I say, I, hugs are free. Mm-hmm. May I offer you a hug? Because sometimes I really just don't know what else to give them, Mark. And I think about what you're saying, and I do want to be there for my patients in that way. And it sounds a lot like friendship, to be honest. And mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people need in this world. But how do I prevent that from completely draining me? Personally, I don't find that draining. And I'd ask you whether you really find that draining Mm. or invigorating. It's those moments of connection and touching understanding, Mm. even if it's in the depths of tears and pain, which reminds me why I wanted to be a doctor, and which leaves me leaving work feeling fulfilled and talking to my wife about what happened and feeling important. And it's when I... Um, denying that Mm -hmm. and pushing the person away or becoming angry instead of connected Mm -hmm. that I feel burned out and exhausted. I want to believe that and what I find so hard is that yes I do find that fulfilling but at the same time it can be emotionally draining I think and maybe I'm not doing it in the right way but when I get home to my two young kids under five it's very hard to drum up more from reserves that I feel like I've given my patients all day long. Yes, I think it can be. <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, And it is fulfilling nonetheless, but... Yeah, and I think it's a dilemma which we face as physicians, and we only have two choices, I suppose. We can try and push away that sense of connection and powerlessness and feel burned out and isolated, It leaves us feeling cut off from patients and cut Mm -hmm. off from people. Or we can embrace it and accept it, feel closer to some people, and be able to share that with people we care about and go to support and and speak with colleagues and speak to our partners when we go home. It's that connection which sustains us. And I, I don't think that it's the feeling of connection which really burns us out and exhausts us Mm. when we go home. I think it's more the sense I wasn't able to do anything. I felt totally flustered. I felt understood. I feel frustrated with myself and with others. And sometimes in spite of listening to patients and like you were saying, in other words, sort of embracing this powerlessness and connecting with the patient in that way. There are patients, no matter what you do, no matter how many hugs you offer, whatever it may be, they just are not ever satisfied. They have an agenda. And so how does getting in touch with my own powerlessness, so to speak, Mm. help me help them ultimately? Right. Does that make sense? does make sense. I think you can't do anything effective unless you know what the contract is between you and the patient. Mm -hmm. And you can't have an honest contract without some kind of alliance based on on understanding Mm -hmm. and connection, right? So if the person's agenda is really just to get one over on you Mm -hmm. and, and get the medications, 
then that's a diagnostic assessment you have to make mm -hmm. and comes with a decision and a management decision. Mm -hmm. And it's important to know early on in the session that, oh, I'm not going to give this person stimulants or I'm not going to give this person more opiates, right? right. That's, that's a decision you have to make before, before your heartstrings are pulled um, <laughs> to the point where you're going to do some damage. It's our Achilles heel, right, to want yeah. to alleviate suffering. And so we're distressed by that sense and it makes us do something maybe not so helpful. But if we can identify early that this person's asking us to do something which we don't feel right mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. and we want to diagnose that it's going to be harmful, then it's done. Right? I see. You know, if, you're, if I'm not going to harm a person, right? So if they're asking me to do something harmful, I'm not going to do that. Right. And sometimes conveying that. Last week I had a patient come to see me and he um, told me about his ADHD and um, laid out why he needed these stimulants and he'd moved. And while he was ch chatting to me, I looked up the PMP mm -hmm. and can see that he was doctor shopping. Mm. And I said, you know, I'm obviously not going to give you some more stimulants, mm. but I'm really glad that you're here. Mm -hmm. And we have an option now, right? You can leave and continue your search, but it sounds exhausting. Or we can do something different, something new. And he thought about it and he stayed. Incredible. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, very, very cool. And you know, we had a very interesting session and he agreed to call his wife by the end of it and was going to tell her what was going on. You know, a real new beginning for him. And it was me acknowledging, first of all, that I wasn't going to do something harmful. Mm -hmm. Second of all, that I wasn't angry with him, mm. but I did feel that there was something helpful if he was willing to join me mm -hmm. and then connecting with him on the fact that this is exhausting and fruitless for mm -hmm. him. So I don't know if that answered your question. I'm not sure, but I was so caught up in how hopeful that end of the story was. <laughs> it, was, right. it, was it was nice because I can think myself of immediately springing to mind two situations where I declined filling a prescription for a benzodiazepine yeah. and for another patient who was going from site to site essentially yeah. and wanted to establish care with me and when I went and did some digging it was a bad track record and I wasn't going to prescribe this patient more Ambien and things like that when he was falling over asleep right. in my in front of me yeah. and so they ended up leaving me as mm -hmm. a primary care doctor mm -hmm. after I made that clear so yeah. I'm waiting for that person who will turn around and say, I'm, I'm willing to work so with you. So going back to the um, person I said earlier with multiple medical, complicated medical yeah. concerns and trauma on very high, outrageous doses of benzodiazepines and opiates, I said to her, I wasn't able to help her right. alleviate this pain, make it go away. And she knew that because she'd been on yeah. infinite doses of right. pain medications. But I cared and I'd stay with her, yeah. you know, and I'd work it out with her to try and alleviate, help her with some of her suffering. Mm -hmm. And if she was willing to stick it out with me, I think that we could help by stabilizing her opiates, slowly tapering her down, getting her to a better place, not tearing her away, tearing her crutches away mm -hmm. or tearing her mm -hmm. opiates away 
but that I'd really be with her in the muck for as long as it took if she was moving towards less danger for herself. Mm. And as long as I was clear that I wasn't going to be causing her more harm. Mm -hmm. And she did, and we were able to stabilize the opiates and reduce the benzodiazepines and leave her in a better situation because she felt like I cared enough and right. wasn't giving her some BS line about what I could do to cure her suffering, and nor was I, nor was I willing to cause her any harm. So I was committed to her. I can imagine for patients that see us recurrently with these demands and we find reiterative struggles over treatment plans like this, that kind of demonstration of empathy and an offer that is empathic and meets the underlying needs to be heard and cared for as an alternative to the state of demand may well be effective. Yeah, I think it really can help a great deal. It's not rejecting them, it's not mm -hmm. responding to the powerlessness by impulsivity. Mm -hmm. It's sitting with it, sharing it, but also being committed to being a physician, doing no harm and staying with the person through their pain to help reduce their suffering. So Mark, if we can switch gears a little bit, yeah. I want to sort of run with this idea of it's okay to feel powerless because we sometimes feel that way with our patients, but I sometimes feel that way with my colleagues. In past podcast sessions, we've talked about for example, a colleague that uses more of her fair share of time and energy from our support staff. And other guests have recommended various strategies um, that really have me taking a very active role in problem solving. How do I go with the flow? Is there a role of quote unquote powerlessness in this situation that will help me not end up feeling resentful? Accepting powerlessness is not the same as going with the flow. So you don't mm -hmm. have to be passive and walked over to accept the powerlessness. If you're being clear about what's essential for you to do your job, mm -hmm. if you're clear about not having the life sucked out of you, you don't have to feel resentful or angry or demonstrative. You mm -hmm. just have to be clear. And part of that comes from not shutting down your powerlessness or denying your powerlessness, but saying, oh, I feel crushed here. Mm. I feel exhausted and I don't like it. It feels bad. Offering mm. yourself some self-compassion and expecting that you have the right to that compassion, because you do. You're asking for something very reasonable. You're asking for something collaborative. And to say, oh, this feels really hard, gives yourself the option to say to that person or to your boss, I'm finding this really difficult, I'm feeling exhausted, and mm. I'm asking for this person to do that, right? So you may have talked in, in prior podcasts in, uh, about saying something assertively, which might start with, deciding what it is you want changed and expressing the emotions involved, right? So please, Marie, when you put yourself out on vacation for the next 12 weekends, leaving me to do the on-calls, I felt upset, I felt walked over, and it was very hard for me. Mm 
-hmm. So please, in future, do this. Mm -hmm. right? It's not allowing yourself to be walked over, but the acknowledgement of that powerlessness gives yourself the option to be kind to yourself and be assertive huh. to the other person. So it's actually completely opposite of where I thought this was going, which, which was that somehow embracing my powerlessness and realizing that I don't have <laughs> I, I don't have any power to change things in my work environment or with, within the organization that I work in, that somehow I would find your secret mark and become very zen and okay with the world. But that's not what I'm hearing. In fact, it's recognizing the powerlessness, showing myself some compassion in order for it to give me the power I need to assert changes or, or things that I need from my colleagues, from my organization, et cetera. Does that sound more yeah, in line? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the serenity prayer of AA, you know, talks about understanding the difference between what you can change, what you can't change, uh -huh. and being having the courage to go ahead and make right. the changes that you're capable of. Right. So if you're in a system which really can't shift mm -hmm. and, you know, you might use the power of advocacy and med pep and friends to alter things, but you might also have to accept that you don't have the power to change it mm -hmm. and stop banging your head against the wall, mm -hmm. but instead pull back a bit, look for other options and take good care of yourself. But if there are things which are changeable, you owe yourself to give it a shot, to try and to have the courage to put across your feelings and ask for the change that you deserve. So how do I find that fine line between asserting myself and having the courage to initiate a change or ask for a change and then not end up banging my head against the wall? Do you see what I mean? How do I figure out that it is futile and that I should step back and take a look? Is it by trial and error? Well, I think so. Okay. I think, I think it depends on the particular circumstance. Right. There's going to okay. be some systems which can't shift and some patients yes. who you can't be successful with, right. who are not interested in partnering, but want to say, no, give me my stimulants or yeah. I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Right. I accept that. Right. You know, and it might be that in your workplace, you have to accept that you can't make the changes that you need. But you do need to make that decision and test it mm -hmm. and see. Right? Otherwise, you can just be bitter and resentful. Yes. And acknowledging that it hurts, that it doesn't feel good and you deserve some better treatment can enable you to have the courage to ask for the changes that could help. Mark, I have to say, I haven't felt this hopeful about my career in a long time. Oh, yeah. I'm so pleased to hear that. Yeah. I really appreciate your perspective and the feeling that even in our powerlessness, that doesn't actually mean I'm incapacitated. Right. But in fact, it should galvanize me to step back and look at my situation or test out and seek change. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Oh, I thought this was a really interesting and valuable conversation. Thank you. And there are many things that I took away. One is that 
embracing powerlessness is not the same, as you said, as passivity, right. but it is basically searching for the right instrumentality for the situation at hand. If that's a difficult patient, it is not getting locked in conflict, but it is searching for the empathic connection for what's going on beneath the overt problem, making connection, making another offer. I'd also add, Marie, that there is neurobiological evidence that the demonstration of compassion is good physiologically. So it's... Uh, I must be in tip-top shape then. Well, <laughs> I, I think Mark said there are additional things you could do in order to capitalize on the compassion which I am certain that you are showing. One is to exercise self-compassion, okay? To say it's okay that this was exhausting. It's okay that I felt some anger. It's okay that I didn't meet exactly this patient's demand. Some is to reframe what you did right in the situation. This comes from gratitude coaching practice. I was able to make a great connection with this mm -hmm. patient. I was able in the end to offer something safe mm -hmm. as an alternative to what they came in for and to take time to appreciate for what you did. And I think that may help you manage those difficult emotions and perhaps leave you some left at the end of the day for yourself and your family. I also want to agree with Mark's notion of an experimental approach, mm -hmm. that this is trial and error. This is seeing in a given situation where you might want to assert, you know, what happens when you try it? Was this the right hypothesis, mm -hmm. the right experimental design, the right variable you sought to change? And if not, what did you learn from the conduct of the experiment? But instead of stopping, repurpose yourself just for the next iteration. So I'm really delighted that Mark was able to offer you this opening of hopefulness in, into your career. And I likewise found it very, very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. That's the exact word I wanted to use. Thank you so much, Mark. My pleasure. All right. Well, I'd like to thank our guest and our listening MedPep audience for joining us again. I look forward to our next session when our guest expert will be Dr. Jane Liebschutz, who will be speaking to us about career development. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment about today's program, email us at feedback at medpep.org or simply visit us at medpep.org. And now, here's a few words from MedPEP's founder, Steve Edelman. This is Dr. Steve Edelman, creator of MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program, and director of PHS, Physician Health Services, a charitable subsidiary of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Our mission is to promote the well-being of health professionals. Many thanks to our seeker, Dr. Marie Curious, to our guide, Dr. Les Schwab, and to our wonderful group, of guest experts. Hats off to project leader Dr. J. Dev Dasgupta, audio producer Douglas Stevens, guitardiologist Dr. Susie Brown, and to the staff and board of PHS. Please visit and connect with us at medpep.org for CME info, faculty bios, and additional empowerment resources.